Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Howie Abrams to discuss his book, Finding Joseph I, an oral history of HR from bad brains. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Howie Abrams, the co-author of Finding Joseph I, an oral history of HR from Bad Brains. Howie, welcome. Thanks, Nathan. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. I got to tell you up front, this has been an extremely emotional and difficult show for me to prepare for because of the trajectory of HR's life, because of what Bad Brains have meant to me personally in my life, because of their massive influence on the world all the what it could have should is, and also because I'm from Austin, which is one of the site of one of the ugliest incidents in HR's life. So, um, you know, but thank you so much for collecting this information and telling this story, because I cannot think of a more important musical story to tell. How did you um, and James come to collaborate on this work? Well, I wound up getting involved with a book publisher um, around 2014, I think it was. And so... The, public, the, the, the owner of the company basically told me to put together uh, a wish list of books that I would like to either do or see other people do. And the top of my list was HR. Um, as you mentioned, you know, HR and Bad Brains have meant an enormous amount to me as well. Um, they're my favorite band of all time. He, as far as I'm concerned, is the greatest front man of all time in any genre. And so... You know, the idea of starting a book uh, with HR was pretty daunting, especially considering what I'd been learning about his um, his condition. So I knew that James Lathos was working on a documentary film about him. So I cold called James um, and asked him if he had any interest in collaborating on sort of a book companion um, to the film. And he was very enthusiastic and he'd been working with HR for a couple of years already at that point. And we wound up just pushing it forward. And I'm glad you did. And, and you got um, our, our D. Randall Blythe of Lamb of God to write a forward for you. And I wanted to quote a little bit because I, I think he has one of the best descriptions of HR as a frontman I've ever read. He says that HR had a stage presence that was literally life-altering to witness. The man moved and sang like a human lightning rod, as if he were communicating with the heavens, channeling some sort of vast cosmic power through his voice and body. You had to be there in person to understand it, to feel it in the air on a molecular level. To see HR fronting bad brains while he was still at the peak of his powers was like watching a man reaching up and tearing the sky in two with his bare hands. I never, you know, was blessed to get to see the Bad Brains back in the day. My wife did. Many of my best friends did. I believe the tales. Um, what What is it like to try to bottle lightning for people who didn't see it and try to communicate the power that HR conveyed on stage? Well, I think Randy did a great job, actually, with it. Um, that's a pretty incredible uh, description. And, you know, again, he wrote the forward for the um, paperback version of the book. And what's crazy is, you know, he, one of the reasons we asked him is because he sort of wound up in the band, you know, um, and we could talk about that later when they, you know, they reunited not too long ago. Um, but it, it's, it is very hard to describe. And the best example that I think you can point anyone to is that 1982 CBGB's home video that came out. It's all over YouTube. And just sort of picture never having seen anybody like that 
performing in front of you. And then all of a sudden, that's what's happening. You know, HR, I mean, a lot of people say things like boundless energy. He had boundless energy. So you had the feeling that if the show was five hours long, he would be just as ferocious at the end as he was at the, you know, the first song. Um, The way he controlled a room sometimes without saying anything. Um, he was not someone who said a lot of, there wasn't a lot of banter between songs uh, at their shows. Um, it was really just the songs themselves. And there was almost something equally intense about the quiet between the songs. Um, all eyes were on him and you just watched him. And, you know, like any, any great artist of any sort, you know, you just wanted to know what what's happening next, like what's going to come next. And you were almost preparing yourself um, because he might be landing on top of you. He might be, you know, climbing the walls. He might be doing sort of anything that you could imagine and then deliver a song unlike anybody in the world. And the other thing that Randall brings up in the foreword is that something at some point had seriously gone wrong with HR's psyche. What happened to HR to the best of your ability to summarize it quickly? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, certainly, you know, early on and throughout a lot of his career, there was drug use. But then um, something occurred where it seems as though mental illness seeped in. And so... I guess when you were watching from afar, all you really had was questions, you know, sort of, is he just being HR? Is he, you know, is he high? Is he this? Is he that? But there seemed to be uh, something legitimately off about him for a while there. Um, He was always unpredictable, but his unpredictability went in a different direction. And, but he had still played a lot of shows in that condition. And so you saw it on stage and I think it sort of really uh, came to a head when the band played, I think it was Lollapalooza in South America. Um, That video is on YouTube as well, where he also looked physically different. He looked like he had lost a lot of weight. He wasn't the biggest guy in the world anyway. So for him to have lost weight was very noticeable. Um, His um, complexion changed. And you can see that he was on stage even before the band set began, um, you know, hearing things like he was hearing voices. He was talking to them. Um, And this is before the band performed. And that apparently was sort of the end uh, at that time for Bad Brains, where they sort of realized that they couldn't uh, perform with him any further. And that was a sad day. And I want to do two more quick quotes before we dive into the meat of the story. Um, the, there's an early chapter where you've got a number of musical uh, people describing what HR means to them. And one of them, two of them that that kind of get to the point, kind of the big what if that has bugged a lot of his fans for a long time. Norwood Fisher and Questlove of the Roots both um, get at it. And let me play our first song before I read those quotes. This is Redbone in the City by Bad Brains from their Black Dots unreleased uh, compilation or unreleased tapes that came out in the mid 90s. But this was the first stuff that DC fans heard on cassette in the late 70s and early 80s. This is Redbone in the City. And that was Redbone in the City from the legendary Black Dots album. Um, and this, I want to get to the Norwood Fisher quote here. He says, um, 
I've heard stories about things that happen along the course of the bad brain's history. What might be looked like at like self-sabotage, but on another level, what was punk rock about again? It was about rebelling and not becoming part of the status quo. So on the one hand, somebody's waving a lot of money and everybody needs to eat and I could dig it. But on the other hand, there's the punk rock ethic and HR is standing his ground going, I don't want to go down that path. And then Questlove, who compares him to Prince, James Brown and Michael Jackson as a performer, says that I know the thing that makes him HR is the fact that he just rebels against the system. I've heard billions of HR stories, but I just wonder what would have happened if certain decisions that he made in his personal life and his professional life were made so that he could have made it to that level of success. Is it even worth asking? I mean, is there a possible world where HR becomes a mainstream celebrity? And is that even something we should be wishing for? Well, the wishing for is the interesting part, right? Because I feel like we're here talking about him in 2022 because of whatever he did uh, or didn't do. So I do think that they had a, I mean, listen, they had a number of shots, right? As far as mainstream success, Um, you know, that time when they signed to Maverick and, you know, got the Beastie Boys tour and there was the time when they were on deck to do the, you know, the U2 Joshua Tree tour and signed to Island. So all those things were were offered up and on the table. But HR being HR had a lot of discomfort with a number of those things um, for various reasons. Um, and so the only thing we have is is, you know, what we know and and what he did engage in. Um, and I don't think he's HR without making the decisions that he made, uh, again, for whatever reasons he made them. Excellent answer. And let's get into his childhood and family background, because he's um, had a really unusual childhood. He's a Air Force brat. Um, his parents met in England. He was born in Liverpool. His father was from Alabama. His mother was from Jamaican. Um, they met and married. They traveled all over the world as part of that, um, you know, classic military life. The the Hudsons lived. He was born Paul D. Hudson. I want to get that out there. He, um, they lived in Jamaica, Texas, Alabama, New York, California, Hawaii. But a key a key development in his life is. When he was left in Jamaica for almost a year by his mother as a very young child, tell us about that. What happened and how do you think that impacted him? Well, I mean, my understanding of it is that, again, um, you know, when, when you're sort of a military kid, obviously you jump around from place to place, um, depending on when his parents told him about where they were going to next, uh, you know, where in the, you know, in the um travel that occurred, you know, because sometimes maybe they told them sort of just before they were about to move. And, you know, maybe he had a lot of notice. It's hard to say. But, you know, when you're a little kid, all you want to do is sort of make friends and dig in a little bit and get comfortable. And so his mom wound up leaving to come back to the States, um, you know, and I think the, the idea was to sort of try to set them up here. So I don't know if there was uh, a next move that the family knew about already or what, but, you know, I think it sounds as though she told him, Oh, I'll be back soon. And that turned into a really long time. So just picture sort of being really young, single digits and, you know, your mom kind of disappears while your dad's in the military and, you know, basically, uh, you don't know (laughs) when and if she's coming back. Yeah, definitely not easy. And let's talk a little bit about his musical development, because his brother Earl, obviously Earl Hudson, the famous legendary drummer of, the Bad, of Bad Brains, and Earl and HR were a musical team from very early on. HR playing ukulele, Earl on drums, playing songs like Help by the Beatles, the Batman theme, and did a talent show where they um, played Hang On Sloopy. So <laughs> what do you make of those those sort of formative influences? I mean, just what the kids had in the air or were they always sort of attuned to a broader range of music than a lot of kids are? Well, it sounds like, you know, there was music in the house. Um, And I think like any young kids who are just sort of looking to find themselves a little bit, you know, a lot of times it's music where you connect. And so 
having his brother Earl there with him, who also was musically inclined, you know, it was interesting that they, you know, were able to kind of do this together. Um, so I think it sounds again, like they knew stuff from the radio. I don't know if there was like a huge record collection there. Um, it, it was more so what was on the radio, American radio at the time. So, you know, again, you, you still had the Beatles on the, on the radio and, and then there was, sort of the, you know, like the black music of the time that was on the radio. So it was sort of James Brown and, and, and things like that. And they just sort of gravitated to music and wound up kind of with this makeshift, like little group between the two of them um, and looking, you know, sort of further as to what to do with it. And another notable thing about his childhood is his manifest athletic gifts. He got into skating and surfing early in Hawaii, but, and and had a coach in Queens later on who really tried to seriously recruit him as an Olympic diver. And then he was a track star in high school on the pole vault. I mean, definitely this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who saw him do perfectly executed standing backflips from nothing. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but he he – gets out of high school and he's a good i mean he's obviously a very bright guy not the best student but a good student talking some noise about med school but is kind of struggling post high school he's a security guard he gets his girlfriend pregnant and dabbles in heroin how did he pull himself out of that early malaise well i think it sounds like he was a bit older than his brother and his brother's friends, because if you look at the formation of Bad Brains, for instance, you know, they were all a bit younger than him. They were kind of like Earl's pals, you know. Um, and so I think they were probably a good influence on him because they really started to get into music. And he was sort of dabbling at that point. And it sounds like he was really searching to find his place, you know, because, you know, he wasn't going to the Olympics as an athlete, but he was incredibly athletic. And, you know, I think he tried playing instruments with them as well, and that didn't really work out. And then at some point, you know, he becomes the front person and a singer. And so I think his love of music at the end of the day was what gave him a place um, and a platform. And I don't even know how much he was looking for a platform quite yet, but around that time, he also got more into music. So there's, you know, talk in the book about how they went to see Bob Marley, um, in DC. And I think Bob Marley was the opener. I don't think he was the headliner. I think I forgot who they they I forgot who they were opening for. It was like a, like an R and B or a soul artist. And he sort of, saw Bob Marley and Bob Marley was so different than anything he'd ever seen or heard before. And it had like this tremendous impact on him. Um, and so, you know, it's like sort of a, I went in for this and I came out with this, you know, he went in like wanted to see Bob Marley, but I think it was like a bunch of artists on the show. So they went to see everything. But when he left, he took, um, this love of Bob Marley with him. And I think that was incredibly transformative for him overall. Let's hear our next song snippet. This is a little bit from Sailing On from the band in DC, uh, Roar Cassette, that was their first commercial release. And that was sailing on from the legendary Roar cassette the Bad Brains released in the early 80s. And before they had the big moment, the Damascus conversion experience at the Bob Marley concert, HR had been into Earth, Wind, and Fire. And then um, Earl meets Gary Miller, later known as Dr. No, and Daryl Jennifer. And um, those guys are playing a lot of Hendrix, 
but also Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Rolling Stones, already a really Catholic mix of black and white artists. And they're hosting parties, charging admission to watch jam sessions. And then they formed this group called Mind Power. That's the full lineup. That's HR, Dr. No, Daryl, and Earl. And they're a jazz fusion band. This was one of the things that blew my mind. And as I've been do doing this history of music, jazz fusion just keeps coming up. It, it was this right. genre that was written off as uh, for dead by people like Stanley Crouch and Wenton Marsalis tried to just put a stake through its heart and say this was <laughs> invalid. This was a waste of everybody's time. This had no influence on the future. And I feel like you know, the Bad Brains and hip hop <laughs> and the Beastie Boys and also electronic dance music um, have all put a lie to that. That jazz fusion was this incredibly influential music. Groups like Chick Corea, Stanley Clark and Return Forever. That's the stuff that these guys cut their incredible chops on. But they didn't click as mind power. That wasn't what the local kids were into. And it didn't go anywhere. And so they have a friend, Sid McRae. What does Sid, Sid McRae introduce them to? Well, so Sid introduces them to punk. And so, and I don't really know where he got it from, but ultimately, you know, um, he brings records like the Ramones and the Damned and things like that into their universe. And, you know, there's quite <laughs> the polar opposite there in terms of musicianship, but the energy and the rebellion of it, um, the sort of, you know, we're going to do whatever we want and say it really loud and, and that type of thing. And so I think that combined with the musicianship of the, you know, the fusion stuff that they'd been really into, um, you start to see where a bad brain starts to come from, you know? Absolutely. And there's not really a scene as such in D.C. It's not a big music town. You know, we're well into the 70s. So the era when you could make money playing as a dance band has been over for 15 years. Bands that play in clubs have to play exclusively covers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really underground scene. Tell us a little bit about Madam's Organ and the hippie co-op. That was one of the first places to take them under wing and let them play. Yeah, I mean, again, my understanding is they... You know, they were sort of a, looking for a place to, to do their thing. And, you know, that area was sort of like a, it was still a very depressed area um, in the D.C., you know, in the district itself. And, you know, they sort of let artists do their thing there. And so there were another um, collective that got to find a, a bit of a home in in madam's organ and so um they they found a place um and they also I mean, more than found a, a venue but they were sort of living there kind of upstairs and and you know it became this hub of creativity for people that were doing things a little differently um in that area so you know that was you know it wasn't the cbgb's it was just more of like a a bit of a hippie collective that, you know, was accepting of, of things that were different. And another big ingredient that we have to bring up is a self-help book, um, an older self-help book by a guy named Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. How did they get their hands on it and how did it impact their philosophy and their actions? Well, it's funny because the book is about money and um, it's not so much, you know, uh, a book about philosophy or, 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 or anything like that. It was, you know, to self-help is even maybe a stretch because it was sort of a financial book. Um, but my understanding is that HR's dad was getting frustrated with him kind of not having a direction. And he wound up finding the book through his dad and read it and applied it, the principles in it, um, to his life. Um, and the, the notion that, you know, if you can conceive of it, you know, uh, then you should believe it and go forth with it. And that's kind of, um, that was the sort of, uh, the PMA concept. And that's something that was obviously tremendous for HR. And tremendous for the scene, because you got to remember when they come into punk rock, it's a very nihilistic scene. People like the Dead Boys and the Damned, 
uh, even the Ramones are very powerful, but they're not, there's no positive message out of that. And HR single-handedly infuses punk with this idealistic positive message, which is such a huge part of the scene from then on that we just take it for granted, but that's HR and his dad. And right away they're getting notice from key people and they open up for the damned in DC. And this is where people like Henry Rollins of black flag later on and Ian McKive, the teen idols at the time and later minor threat and Fugazi first see him and them see the bad brains and they're, you know, they blow people away. People are there to see the damned, but come away talking about bad brains. And then the damned invite them to UK and, and to tour with them. They moved to New York uh, as a launching pad. What happened when they get over there? Well, I mean, from, I know very little about the tour itself. Um, other than, you know, just sort of the whole thing was a bit of a mess, you know, um, that, you know, I don't know how prepared they were to do this, you know, from from what I've heard, you know, the Rollins and the Ian McKay saw them sort of walking around D.C. like who are those guys, you know, and then finally they go see the damned and they're in a band and, and opening for them. So. I wish I could do a better job telling you about that tour, but I don't know a ton about it other than, you know, it was a financial mess and, you know, a bit of a wake up call for, you know, how they had to consider moving forward. Yeah, apparently they sold all their equipment except for their guitars. They get over there. They don't have working papers. They look like freaks. The British are racist and they don't even get in the country. And right. the, the guitars are stolen at the airport. So they end right. up in New York with nothing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but amazingly recover, they decide to stay in New York. And the thing is, you know, these were middle-class kids who had jobs, who, who, you know, were already living on their own and, and making a living these were not street kids or anything like this. So it was a deliberate choice to become street kids in the cause of punk rock, at least for a little while. Um, they end up opening for The Clash at Bonds. This is this legendary series of gigs The Clash played uh, in New York where they were residents for like a week. Other people that opened for The Bad Brains around this time were Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. So, you know, The Clash definitely had their finger on the pulse and The Bad Brains make a big impression. They put out the Pay to Come single in 1979, which is many people consider, if not the first hardcore punk single, the second after the middle class first single, but it's head and shoulders beyond anything anybody had done up to that point. And then they meet this guy, Mo Sussman, who's a restaurateur who was invited to fund a film project. And there's footage of the bad brains in this movie. He doesn't care about the film, but he gets really fascinated with the bad brains. What happened when most Sussman tried to manage them? Well, I mean, again, I think these guys had their own ideas um, about what they envisioned for themselves. And so anytime a manager comes into the picture, I mean, you're, you're really inviting a fifth, in their case, fifth band member um, into the orbit. And so, you know, he had his ideas about what they should do. And, you know, so it's just a difficult relationship, you know? So ultimately, uh, you know, he did a few things for them and they had plenty of conflicts. Um, so, you know, he was just one of a number of people that stepped into their world and really had to try to adapt to them. And, you know, and at the same time, you know, was trying to get them to adapt to him. And I don't know how the bad brains really were prepared to, to adapt to anybody. <laughs> Very clear. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll hear how HR inadvertently invented the term mosh. And so the bad brains have already been Pied Pipers and by all accounts, Henry Rollins, Ian McKay, everybody at Discord, they were the formative creators of the DC hardcore punk ethos, which has become one of the most important in the history of the music. But now they move to New York and they do it all over again with a new scene that becomes equally important in the long story. And the term mosh comes out of there. How did mm -hmm. HR invent this term? So... <laughs> 
it's one of the, the great stories of all time, whether it's 100% accurate or not. Um, you know, if you listen to reggae, if you listen to reggae artists um, in songs on stage, you very often hear them say mash, like to mash up the place. Um, and so obviously at that point, HR was very influenced by reggae and Rasta culture. They were they were uh, jumping right into uh, Rastafarian lifestyle. And so that part of the culture was a huge thing for them. And so he would be on stage with Bad Brains because they were playing reggae songs along with the hardcore. And he would say things like, you know, mash it, mash it up. And so I don't know if it happened in Boston or in New York, but people started sort of repeating it. And instead of mash, because the people who were unfamiliar with reggae and that patois and the whole thing uh, heard mosh. And so it became mosh it up instead of mash it up. And so it somehow would happen around the time when there were long breaks without vocals and people would dance. And obviously punk had this very unique dance style and it was different in New York than it was in Boston, than it was in DC, than it was in California. And so New York, for instance, the dance stuff, like the slam dancing parts, you had like the fast stuff, the pogoing, the, 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 the slam dancing, but there was a different thing going on in New York starting at the time. And it was to the slower stuff and it was like speed skanking. So you had the reggae skanking thing, but it was sped up. And so that mosh got attached to that. And and that's sort of what happened. And around this time, they meet a guy named Neil Cooper, who has uh, what he calls Reach Out International Records. Everybody calls that ROAR, R-O-I-R. And had a studio, 171A is kind of the name of the studio, I guess. That was a street address, and it was close to a club called A7. And it's one of these sort of studio slash club slash squat that became the center of the New York punk scene. And one night, the Bad Brains played a show there, and he set up the mics and recorded their first masterpiece, the Band in D.C. album. A lot of people are going to say the Black Dots album is their first masterpiece it's hard to argue with that, but the Roar no, one was no one the one. Heard it. Yeah, yeah, nobody got heard it outside of DC. You know, Henry Rollins says if they had just put out a thousand copies of that Black Dots thing as an album, you know, that would have been the biggest thing that ever happened long before Black Flag's damage, et cetera, et cetera. But what they did do was put out, um, well, they put out the Pay to Come single in 79, like I mentioned, yeah. and then they put out um, the Roar cassette. And this thing has this massive national impact. This is where I first heard of, of the Bad Brains. And so much of it was the cognitive dissonance of, this is what? Hardcore punk, okay? These guys are black, and they're playing reggae black. too? And and it absolutely blew my mind. And I couldn't wait to play it for my black friends who had been so dismissive of punk rock and, you know, Nate's crazy and ha-ha. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, made a couple of converts early on in Borger, Texas there. And then Angela Moore Fishbone is just one of many people who point out what it meant for him was it made it okay for bl to be black and play punk rock. I don't think there's any way to overstate the importance of that in American cultural history. Yeah, I think what's interesting, too, is that, listen, I'm not a black man. And I I saw, you know, you didn't ignore the difference that they were uh, black men doing this. You know, for me, and I think a lot of people in New York, it just sort of made them cooler um, that there was a mystique about it. And then on top of it, that there was the Rastafarian culture of it, which really just meant a lot of weed to most people. But you started to see um, culturally what they had to offer and where they were coming from and how black kids could relate to punk rock, maybe for the first time, because probably the only thing anybody related to early on other than the music was just that it was angry and it was fast and it was going to piss off your parents and, you know, you had your own thing. But I can't really imagine, you know, what it would have been like to be a black kid trying to find yourself and maybe the sort of R&B and soul music from your parents or whatever wasn't your thing. And 
here come these four black guys who, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of, if they didn't invent it, perfected something um, and brought this energy and was relatable to everybody, white, black, and otherwise. Um, it was just a turning point, not just for music, but just for culture and for America, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some other big developments that come along around this time. They meet up with a guy named Anthony County, who mm -hmm. becomes their manager. Do you remember the, the, the story of how he ends up as their manager? Well, from what I understand, he saw them at Roseland in New York. I, I forgot who they opened for. It was like a big show. Uh, Roseland was a pretty big place. It was Gang of Four. Oh, Gang of Four, right. So they, they, they you know, it's like 3,200 people, Roseland. It's not a small place. And so the Bad Brains were becoming meaningful in New York, and they wind up with the opening slot. So he saw them. And again, now you're seeing Bad Brains on a big stage. So it's one thing to see them at A7 or 171A um, in a smaller room. And, you know, the energy is undeniable and, you know, it, it, it's punk rock. But to see them on a big stage and see it translate is something else. And, you know, HR had that sort of rock star thing about him. Um, without even trying, I mean, just effortlessly. And that show turned on Anthony. And Anthony notices that Daryl Jennifer, the bassist, is out for pizza at a key moment when they're being called to get on stage. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and inserts himself in the process, tells the club manager, hey, it'll just be a minute. The bass player's right. getting some pizza, runs down the street, collects Daryl Jennifer and gets him on stage. And He's basically blessed slash cursed with being the Bad Brains manager for most of the rest of his life. Um, yeah. And, and and just even that night, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, he, he had no intention of doing that when he showed up. Um, and then basically is corralling these guys who are not used to like actual set times and, you know, union venues and things like that, where like you really actually have to be on time. <laughs> and let's go ahead and hear our next song this is rock for light from their rock for light album That was the Bad Brains' Rock for Light, one of their classic positive message songs from their second album, Rock for Light, produced by Rick Ocasek. But before we get to that, I, I want to hammer a nail again just one more time. They've already been the Johnny Appleseed of the D.C. scene, the New York scene. And by way of Henry Rollins, who's an absolute HR acolyte, who becomes Black Flag's frontman in time for the Damaged album, Essentially, you can make an argument that the Bad Brains, if they didn't invent hardcore punk, they perfected it and were the most influential band going. That's big. Then their influence on people like Angela Moore and Vernon Reed and the mem future members of Faith No More and Jane's Addiction, et cetera, et cetera. Who you else? Can draw, Everybody. <laughs> yeah, you can draw a direct line to you know, the, the early late 80s, early 90s alternative slash funk metal scene, which becomes new metal, which becomes the dominant strain of metal. So the most influential band uh, in American hard rock of, of the last quarter of the 20th century, last half, last quarter of the 20th century. But they go on their first tour of the country with Anthony County managing them. And this is where things start to kind of go wrong. HR's it's a little funky out there. Yeah, HR has dived headfirst into the Rasta philosophies. He's reading his Bible constantly. Jamaica, Jamaican culture, notoriously homophobic. Some of the things he's seen in New York City, he's starting to think of the city of Sodom. He goes to San Francisco, <laughs> does a flip side interview that is kind of a warning sign, but then he goes to Austin plays with the legendary big boys, 
and has a great show and then everything goes wrong. What happened in Austin and what's your take on on it looking back with this distance? Well, again, uh, you know, starting with what HR and the band immersed themselves in in New York, where they really got heavily introduced to, um, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, um, which was uh, a branch of the, you know, the Rastafarian culture and tree and religion and HR being the intense person that he is. I mean, he went literal with it, you know, so what was written in the Bible was the gospel. That was it. That's what he believed. And he was a young guy. And again, being in New York, they were exposed to things that they had never dealt with before. Um, so there were obviously homosexuals and artists and this and that. And it was, you know, again, the melting pot, you know. And so it really clashed with their beliefs at the time. And so, you know, then they leave New York. And I would imagine those guys on tour felt like they had something to prove and they were trying to make their mark. And, you know, this conflict they had with the big boys, which I understand, I think, happened at the place they were staying, um, not so much at the gig itself, but, um, you know, that they there was like, a, you know, a lot of homophobia thrown around um, at those guys. And, you know, it, it was ugly. And, you know, there was like weed stolen and a note left and, you know, all these things kind of kind of went down and, you know, it was ugly. And unfortunately, that incident and some other you know, the interview they had done out West and other things like really um, followed them and they got this reputation sort of for being assholes, you know, and and that followed them. But it didn't follow them everywhere because they were still this incredible band. And so, you know, people at the time it was pre-internet, you know, there wasn't a lot of open commentary about it. Um, and you know, some people got really pissed off and some people didn't know about it and some people gave them a pass. Yeah. And in Austin, it, it's to this day, it's still, you know, a, a matter of faith. If you're part of the Austin punk scene, you can't like the bad brains and MDC to me ruined themselves as a band by proselytizing about it to the point where I was like, is Dave Dichter racist or what? Um, yeah, right. And, and you know, anyway, just a totally unfortunate situation. And I'm not going to try to excuse the homophobia, but uh, we are trying to explain it and what happened. Because to me, it's like HR was on the path. He was attempting to be like a John Coltrane, a secular saint of music. I mean, he was living it. He was, he was, you know, constantly reading his Bible, very ascetic person. Um, but I think I think the heavy pot use with the the Rastafarians and some of the rigidity of their philosophy and him being so young and ideological. I wish he had read a little bit more of the Judge Not Lest You Be Judged part of the Bible. Well, yeah, but I guess the, the, again the thing was when you're still it's early on you're emerging yourself in in religion period. You know you're looking for answers, you're looking for explanations, and he found them. So he you know the good parts you know, made him embrace stuff that was questionable also. So it was it was an interesting time for them. You know, again, being in New York, that stuff didn't really follow them back here. You know, it was interesting because um, I know from having gone to Austin, the impact that that stuff had there. Um, but when we were doing the book, it was always there for me that I had to address not the incident specifically, but but the homophobia, you know, that followed them with like, you know, don't blow bubbles and 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 things like that when they did the quickness album and, you know, sort of the the that that idea that they had um, and were speaking about pretty openly. And, you know, at least I was happy to know that that was something that was behind him. You know, um, it's in the book. Um, you know, I felt like I wasn't doing my job, um, if I didn't address that with him, um, for the book, because as a fan, you had to ask, you know, 
But then there were times when we did the first screening uh, of the film and book signing in D.C. And I was so curious to hear like what the questions were going to be from the crowd. It was like three, four hundred people there. And of course, the very first question was about homophobia, you know, and it was like, you know what? If he was a member of your family and he had fucked up, you know, the way he had earlier on many, many, many years, decades prior and has since addressed it. It was amazing to me that that was the first question someone wanted to ask. So it was that unfortunate that those things had happened and those things were said to the point where, you know, he openly addressed it and people still just could not let that die, you know, or look at it in the perspective that I felt people should probably have. And that that was a shitty thing that happened that like, why are we still talking about it? Sort of, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's just a lot of raw feelings and I don't know what he could do to make amends. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, there was a pot burn and Anthony County, the manager, says he saw Gary Miller, Dr. No, put the money in the envelope for Biscuit, the singer of of uh, the big boys. And, you know, somehow that was replaced with shredded paper and an ugly note. Right. You, You know, but for the other guys in the band who've been through so much with HR to still get pilloried for it. I, I find that kind of unfair. And anyway, well, it's, it was association, you know? Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, again, like none of us were there and we all like a good story, right? Like, so it's a really interesting story and, you know, pivotal, obviously, and shitty. And I don't know if we'll ever know exactly what happened. You know, um, there's everybody's version of it, but we do know that this, you know, this, this, homophobic moment happened and there were others. Um, but it's easy to see that they were very young and they were, you know, following this, you know, these tenets of, of Rastafarianism that, you know, and Jamaican culture that were, were knee deep in this stuff. And also the punk scene at the time was incredibly homophobic. I've seen so many people who talk on and on about how they hate the bad brains. And then they've got the Meat Man album right. that's, you know, screamingly homophobic, explicitly homophobic. You know, Guns N' Roses doesn't get this much heat for being homophobic. But let's right, move but, on. But but people were homophobic at the time. You know what I mean? So yeah. why wouldn't it be in punk rock, too? Absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our uh, last song. This is from the classic Eye Against Eye album. This is Sacred Love, recorded, the vocals recorded from a DC jail. <laughs> And that was Sacred Love, which the vocals of which HR recorded from the D.C. jail while he was doing a little time for selling marijuana. But let's talk about this Rick Ocasek Rock for Light album. He, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, not a favorite of the punk scene, that probably the definitive new waiver who achieved commercial success um, in an era when people like the Ramones and the Sex Whistles couldn't get a second's worth of radio play. So a lot of people in the punk scene didn't like him. But he welcomed the Bad Brains into a studio, lets them cut the Rock for Light album. I think they cut it in three days. Um, PVC Records puts it out. There have been complaints about the mix ever since. I think if you listen to the original vinyl, it sounds great. It's the remixes that have come out since that don't sound as good. But around this time, they have their first really big opportunity. They blew a relationship with Mo Sussman you know, after he put like 25 grand into buying them new equipment. But this time... They get an opportunity to meet with Tom Zutat, who's one of the legendary A&R men in hard rock. He later goes on to sign Guns N' Roses um, with Elektra Records at the time. Later, he goes to Geffen. And this is the same Elektra that's signing Metallica right at the same moment. And everybody knows what happened with Metallica. Yep. 
What happened when HR met Tom Zutau? I think when they connected, it was at a time where HR, there was a few things, right? So he didn't trust any of this record business stuff. Like he was turned off to it, was convinced that any record label executive, any record label, especially a bigger one, was going to make him change. And he didn't want that. I mean, at this point, you're also at a time when he wasn't really sure he wanted to be doing this music anymore. Um, he was much more into reggae and, you know, human rights had begun, um, you know, him as a solo artist singing reggae exclusively. Um, and, you know, he just didn't trust I don't know if it was Tom or anybody who would have been in Tom's seat, but he didn't trust it. And he didn't want, he didn't want to really do this. Um, but, you know, like with other things, when he would return to the band after leaving, you know, he did it largely because of his brother, because he felt he was screwing his brother um, by not following through with some of these things. Um, and he just wasn't about it at all. And shortly after that, they open up for Peter Tosh at Stony Brook and the band splits up in bitterness because, you know, for everybody else in the band, this is not good. They want to be on Electra. They want you know, this is what they're doing with their lives. They want to make a living at this. They want to succeed. They know what they've got. They know what they are. And, you know, the band falls apart. HR goes back to D.C., forms a group called Human Rights. And my understanding has always been that that was a pure reggae group, but really, and I never listened to the records because back in the day you had to pay money, you know, for to hear this stuff. Um, but you go back and it's actually a rock band. There's a mix yeah. of, of rock and reggae, some really good stuff, does uh, a couple albums with them. Also has Zion Train, which is an all reggae project, a nine piece band um, and, and does recording. So, He's refusing to cooperate with the system. He's becoming less and less enamored with punk rock and, and playing violent music. But this is a period when he's definitely sane and productive, even if maybe he's not as efficient, maybe smoking too much pot or whatever um, and, and get into trouble. But he's not yet completely devolved in this period. It's still productive, just not in a direction a lot of his fans wanted him to go. Well, but the thing is, I will say. Um, early on, I do remember more than one human rights show where he just didn't show up, um, where it was advertised, you know, as as any other show would be. And he just didn't come. Um, so the band would be there, the whole thing. And he never he never made it to the venue. Um, so things were starting, you know, to show um, the cracks were forming, I guess. Um but the shows that he did were fantastic. And some of those albums and, you know, uh, bits and pieces of the other albums are frigging great. Um, you know, it was starting to, to, to take shape and, and become something. And he had Earl along with him. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a, an interesting time because while there was, you know, a cohesive unit, although again, then shortly thereafter, that became a revolving door of musicians as well. Um, you know, there was something forming there on the side, uh, you know, and then, you know, in 1985, they reformed the Bad Brains once again. Yeah. And this is one where Anthony County got an offer for them to play a big show at the Rock Hotel and just made some phone calls just to see if they would do it. And they did. And then yep. when they do the rehearsal, they end up writing virtually the whole of the Eye Against Eye album. A couple of those songs had been worked on previously, but the bulk of that album is written right there. And then they get a hold of Ron St. Germain, who's, you know, it's just like kind of like Rick Ocasek. This is a guy with literally everybody from Jimi Hendrix to Whitney Houston on his resume. I mean, Aretha yeah. Franklin, Michael Jackson, Soundgarden, Tool, Mick Jagger, U2, Muse, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Foreigner, Kraftwerk, Duran Duran. I mean, this is an A-list music biz professional who hears their record, wants to produce them. SST Records, Greg Ginn of Black Flags Labels, the only label that'll do it. They they tell Jermaine they've got a five thousand dollar budget and he thinks it's for one song, <laughs> right? <laughs> but they tell him that's for the whole album. They cut the whole thing live in two days, even with a or three days with a problem with you know a drum kit that didn't sound right and had to be replaced. And that's how 
uh, HR ends up recording Sacred Love from Jail. But we're so short on time. I want to get to the, you know, in that album, that's the definitive one. That launches your living colors and your fish bones and your faith no mores. I mean, Eye Against Eye, absolutely the most pivotal album in metal of that time and this is something again i was a metal and punk fan back in the day but it, recently i've been going back and going through these histories and it's crazy but metallica ends up being the less influential metal band they influence the whole death metal black metal sort of extreme metal chain but what has become the mainstream of metal all comes from eye against eye just an absolutely monumentally influential album and a great album but what happened in the aftermath when you know, there's multiple record labels trying to sign them, sign them up, and Island wants them to. I mean, they're talking about opening for U2 on the Joshua Tree tour, and and Chris Blackwell maybe wanting to fund a Bob Marley movie starring HR. What happened? How much of that is BS that you can tell, and and how much was real, and why didn't they do it? Well, the you know the the signing to Island was a real thing. Um, and I, you know, there's conflicting stories about the Bob Marley movie and, and HR. Like, so there are people who go from, no, that was really a discussion to like, that never happened, you know? So that's, that's going to remain in the, uh, the myth bin. Um, but the, there was a, a meeting, my, again, my understanding of it, um, you know, he walked out on, um, Chris Blackwell at this show at 1018, which was in 1987. Um, it was the Circle Jerks, Bad Brains, Leeway, and what was called at the time still Vernon Reed's Living Color. Um, that's how they were still playing. And so they play the show. Bad Brains were fucking phenomenal. I was at the show. Um, just, you know, unbelievable Bad Brains show, HR on fire, the whole thing. And supposedly, uh, Anthony sees HR after the show and says, I want to introduce you to Chris Blackwell, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how much had been discussed prior about like, you know, their interest in bad brains or what. And bad brain said, okay, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom. And then they saw HR like leave, leave the club. Um, so that's the first bit. And then my other understanding was that they were at Island again, don't know if this is accurate or not, but this is the story I've heard multiple times. They were at Island records, uh, possibly to sign and HR said, I'll be right back and left. And then they didn't find him again for months, man. So, you know, he just wasn't, he, he wasn't about it. He was fearful that they were going to make him, change um and just you know a note on eye against eye which is phenomenal um i couldn't believe as a fan that they could make a record so different than what they were doing prior and for it still to be so great and so accepted so their core fans for the most part still loved it and then they gained you know I don't even know how many fold uh, number of fans um, from that album because it was a much easier listen than, you know, the Roar cassette, let's say. Yeah, I know in the dorm at the University of Texas in Austin in the late 80s, if you had metal friends who were dismissive of punk, you could put on Eye Against Eye and they had to shut up. Like, okay, these guys can play. Okay, this rocks. Okay, where can I buy this? You know? Well, because you didn't just have the ferocity anymore. You had you know, the musicianship shining through and they just sounded like a great rock band. And, and that's something that, that was a transition for them in terms of a recording. And we don't have time to go through the next 20 years of struggle <laughs> and, and attempts to, to get the bad brains together. There's all kinds of attempts. They did albums without HR. They did albums where HR came in at the last minute. They, you know, ultimately signed with Maverick. he, literally you know doesn't come out on stage for the opening night of a tour with the beastie boys on a tour i think with the deftones he cracks a kid overhead with the mic yep. stand and, and does some jail so and this goes on and on and on there's a period when he plays as the soul brains because he's not comfortable with the term bad brains anymore there's a tour in 2012 where uh he's 
manifestly schizophrenic on stage and the band ultimately has it with him. But can you give us an update on how is he doing now? I know he got married. He's been on psychotropic drugs and that's apparently been working very well. And then there was a surgery uh, to address some of the physical issues with his brain. How's HR now? He's doing quite well. I mean, um, in terms of, you know, the, the difficulties he'd been having there for a long time, he's been treated for that for a while and he's steadied quite a bit, but then came these sunk headaches, um, that were really, really debilitating, um, that James dealt with him quite a bit with, um, you know, when he was doing the film, um, where he would just have these really awful, I think they're called suicide headaches, um, you know, like migraines times 10, you know? And so that finally came to a head, um, largely because of James and and his wife, Lori, um, where they just were like, you know, one of the reasons they were quick to marry other than they were going to be together anyway, but, um, that they were quick to actually get married was so that Lori could put HR on her insurance, on her health insurance. And so they could finally go, and have his headaches addressed. So they went to, there was sort of, there's like a headache specialist um, place in, in Philadelphia where he was living at the time. And they diagnosed him and basically did a, a version of brain surgery where they went in through the back of his head and they had to move a nerve um, off of, you know, wherever it was putting pressure that was causing the headaches. So he doesn't have them nearly as bad as he used to. And he's just really sort of peaceful and enthusiastic about making music. He's going back out on the road. Um, He's been playing shows for a few years, but he's going on the road where he's, you know, sort of playing every night for a week or two. Um, It's, it's so amazing to see considering where he was certainly when I started the book journey with him, but even earlier when James had been dealing with him and, you know, for instance, I would get some of the transcripts of the interviews that James had already done with him. And the very earliest ones, uh, you know, he would just ask HR to state his full name and he would just talk about something else for a half hour, you know, like sort of wherever he was at the time, that's what he wanted to express. And then James would come back to it and have to try to get him to say, my name is Paul, you know, Paul D. Hudson. Um, and it was really difficult to communicate with him, which is, you know, also why we use so many different voices in the book, um, not just for like context and historical context and whatnot, but, you know, he had a hard time remembering a lot of things about the past. So he would remember certain things incredibly well and vividly and other things, you know, he couldn't really comment on because they just were not there for him. And Howie, it's been a delight talking uh, about Joseph I, a.k.a. HR, a.k.a. Paul Hudson of Bad Brains. The book is Finding Joseph I, an oral history of HR from Bad Brains. And my guest has been Howie Abrams. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Yuri Campbell for another installment of What Have We Learned, this time focusing on Ted Joya's birth and death of the cool. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.